0: Episode number 33 of the Media Narrative podcast. I'm Rob Hoschel. This is a show featuring media makers, their stories and their process. Please subscribe to the podcast and newsletter at TheMediaNarrative.com.
1: I think more reporting about the injustice of a lack of health care. I mean, again, like Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, they said, you know, Of all the forms of injustice, the lack of health care is one of the cruelest.
0: Dr. Joya Mukherjee is the chief medical officer at Partners in Health, a nonprofit that strives to bring the benefits of modern medical care to people in countries who are most in need. Since joining PIH more than 20 years ago, Dr. Mukherjee estimates that she has spent more than half of that time in nations like Sierra Leone and Haiti, providing care and working with local organizations to help them serve their people. We recently met up in her Boston office. She talked about how slavery, colonialism, and neoliberalism have contributed to today's global healthcare crisis. She talked about being shaped by a childhood visit to her father's home country of India and witnessing poverty and illness there and about some of the ways that media has fallen short in covering global health. Joya Mukherjee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So, I'd like to start by having you sort of frame the the problem in a in a clear way for all of all of the listeners right now. What would you say are the greatest concerns in global health at the moment?
1: So, For us at Partners in Health, um, and I believe around the world, especially in poor countries, the gravest concern is that people don't have health care. It's much uh, more broad than people think. Is it a disease? Is it this or that? But people don't have access to health care. And what we try to do is help governments and communities to realize the right to health through a series of investments and supports to really provide health care for the poor.
0: In terms of disease and in terms of parts of the world that this you're really putting the focus on, where are the highest priorities at the moment?
1: I mean, the, the poorest countries we work in, which are uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, Malawi, Sierra Leone, Liberia... Um, Rwanda, which is doing better, but is still in that category, and Lesotho, which is um, not as poor as the other countries we work, but has a very poor health system, Mm -hmm. and Haiti. Mm -hmm. Those are where we do comprehensive care. But we also work in a couple of middle-income countries where we're supporting the governments to do better work for the poor. Mm -hmm. Mexico, Peru, Kazakhstan.
0: So, how did we get here? Uh, You know, when when we've we talked about this earlier, and I've read parts of your book, not the Mm -hmm. entire entire book, but you know, you talked about uh, slavery and colonialism and neoliberalism as being these sort of large factors in history and Mm -hmm. in thinking that have brought us to this point. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how those have Mm -hmm. led to this healthcare crisis.
1: Yes, thank you. Because it is a crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's a chronic problem. And so we don't see it as a crisis. But when you see people die of broken legs and pneumonia, which is not uncommon to see that in, in a place like rural Liberia, you have to question why in the 21st century that would occur. And those ideas of slavery colonialism and neoliberalism which is an economic theory that says the market will fix everything also relate to something dr. King warned us about uh, which were the the triple the triplets the giant triplets of militarism racism and and materialism and I think what we see is that the 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 wealth in the North, whether it's Europe or the United States has been built through the extraction of resources and human beings from some of the world's poorest places. And the legacy of that and the lack of investments because of the need to make profit, etc. the lack of investments has left billions of people without any healthcare and without any access to education food, jobs. And so to me and to us at Partners in Health, that suffering is absolutely needless, that there is enough money uh, to meet these basic human rights. And we would like to elevate the lack of health care as a crisis uh, around the world. And we see it in communities of color in the United States. Uh, we see it in, in poor communities around the world, even in wealthy countries, that this inadequate access to care um, is causing very significant premature mortality. If one takes the T from Roxbury Crossing in Boston to Back Bay Station, um, you... you Gain 30 years in your life expectancy. Mm, The life expectancy of a black man in Roxbury is about 60, and the life expectancy of a white woman in Beacon Hill is close to 90.
0: Really? Wow. Yes. That's extraordinary, right here in this city.
1: In this city. And so that ought to be thought of as a crisis Mm -hmm. that is based on the histories of racism, militarism, and materialism that have not allowed us to distribute resources for basic human rights to everyone.
0: So- you are a trained doctor. What you've just been talking about for the last few minutes are not just medical issues or scientific issues. They're socioeconomic issues. They're issues about war and politics and government and, and a long list of things that, um, that sort of would come under all of those things. So how is it that you've arrived at this place? Like, I'm, I am actually curious to just kind of step back for a moment and hear a little bit about your path that brought you here to Partners mm-hmm. Health. Partners in Health, where you've worked for 20 some odd years. Um, What was it that first put you on the path that you're on now?
1: I think we all as Americans, particularly white Americans, and I'm mixed uh, race, but Mm. most people think I'm white. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think we live in quite a bubble. And as a, as a child, I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood and my father was a professor, my mother, you know, uh, also. And so we didn't really need anything. Uh, but my father was from Calcutta. And as a young child, I went to Calcutta with my family. And that was in the year 1972 when the largest number of refugees um, in the 20th century were moving from Bangladesh into uh, West Bengal, which is uh, the state that Calcutta is in. And what I saw was extreme poverty and huge amounts of it. Uh, it It was recognized later that that year there were 10 million additional refugees in the streets of Calcutta. And what I saw was people dying, children dying of starvation, um, people dying with leprosy, tuberculosis. um, And these were diseases I didn't understand at the time as an eight-year-old kid. But what you see when poverty gets into the body in the form of illness is that it's really dehumanizing. You know, that each of these diseases, whether it's people who lose their fingers and toes or arms and hands from leprosy or become very thin from tuberculosis, it serves to dehumanize people. And I was really broken by that as Mm. a kid. And I think coming back to this idyllic life and knowing that there is this world out there made me really a, a seeker, even as a child, to try to make sense of this. And I think, you know, children have a sense of justice. You know, mm-hmm. we beat it out of them by mm-hmm. saying, don't look, don't that, that person's unlucky. But it didn't seem like a luck issue to me. It seemed mm-hmm. like deeply unfair. And um, and I think throughout my life, I it really led me to look at the writing of Dr. Martin Luther King, of Nelson Mandela, of many different thinkers. And it always seemed that health when you looked at the writings of these great people, they saw health as a thermometer for injustice. Mm. And so I looked at health much more through a political lens, even as a young person. Um, I never really liked science, nor was I particularly good at it. And I was very pleased to find that there is a whole thread called social medicine, which is taking the rather than focusing on the biologic say why is that biologic problem present and often it'll these larger social forces like displacement poverty lack of food poor sanitation and so um In my seeking, I started college in the early 80s, which was when the AIDS epidemic was first being sort of recognized. And it seemed to me so obvious because of what I had seen in India as a kid that it was gonna immediately be the same thing, marginalized, present among the poor, that others could kind of escape its grasp. And so I got very interested. And there was a social movement at that time in the 80s and 90s. And I got to know many amazing HIV activists who were fighting for their lives. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing was they kept fighting because even when they got their treatment in the United States by forcing the FDA, by forcing the government to do more, they said, it's not just about us. It's about our brothers and sisters in the South. Mm -hmm. And that was so different that was so different, that kind of solidarity, and was very moving. So I, when I started working in Africa, I was about 20, 25, um, and what I saw, you know, I thought, okay, we're going we're gonna to treat the sick, and in fact, there was no medical care at all. And so the confluence of this recognition that there is no medical care, everyone's focusing on prevention and vaccines and simple things, and there are broken legs and pneumonia and cancer and mental illness, and I, it made no sense as a doctor. It made no sense given my sort of sociopolitical political Understandings, And so I was very lucky that I stumbled upon Partners in Health uh, in 1998, because I'm not sure what I would have done, quite frankly, maybe gone into politics, which probably I saved myself and a lot of people from that. <laughs>
0: So so, you when you were 25 and you went to Africa uh, at that point, you already had completed your medical degree. Not yet. Or? The first okay. time
1: I went, I was a student.
0: But you were thinking, what sort of were you envisioning for yourself I, on a medical path at that I point? I
1: think what I thought at that time, and it's really interesting because I, I I wish I had written this down, um, but I remember saying to a friend that you know that who was very snarky and said, "Oh, you want to save the world?" and I said, "No." I, I I don't think I can save the world. I want to work with a group of people who give a shit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Who who don't just live in a bubble and who are willing to combine their skills to tackle a problem. That's all I care about, like being on the right team. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel every day mm-hmm. at PIH. You yeah. know, are we saving the world? No. Are we with a team of people who really give a shit and yeah. want to do the right thing? Yes. And so yeah, that's what I envisioned and then I got there and there was such low expectations for what people could expect that it just was heartbreaking. I came back to the United States. That was in 1991. I came back to the United States after my first work in Africa as a med student and I got clinically depressed. Mm. I you know, I came back I couldn't go to shopping malls. Mm. I couldn't like, go to restaurants. It was so painful having seen kids die of malnutrition, you know, mothers die in childbirth. And the level of care available was hardly anything at all. Mm. And so then I went back to do more prevention in in the mid-90s in Uganda and HIV. And again, I saw people dying of totally treatable, you know, things. And that's when I started to try to understand how did this happen? And... Where I realized that these social forces and historical forces were underpinning this current day reality of you know a life expectancy of fifty years. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm fighting against.
0: Well, and it's a good thing you're you're fighting that fight. You know, and <laughs> and one of the things you mentioned was that that uh, life expectancy difference in this town here in Boston between one part of the city and another part of the city. But th- that problem exists, I know, uh, between the United States mm-hmm. and say. African nations yeah, yeah. it may be even in a more severe oh. disparity well
1: you know interestingly the disparity isn't that different mm, wow. um but I mean if you look at the average life expectancy okay. in the United States for women is in the low 80s and the average life expectancy for women who live longer um in Sierra Leone is probably 50 so then mm. again you have a 30-year discrepancy um and that's average. So, of course, rich people in Sierra Leone are going to live longer than poor people. Right. Urban people are going to live longer than rural people just because of access. So, But these discrepancies mirror the the militarism, racism, and materialism, and how that gets into the body in every country, except – those countries that have healthcare as a basic right, where you can remediate some of that mm-hmm. in the UK or in Denmark, but not all of it. Because mm-hmm. you look at Canada and life expectancy among the indigenous First Nations people is far, far lower than for non-indigenous Canadians. And again, is that genetic? It is not. Mm-hmm. It's about zip code, mm-hmm. you know? And I, this is why I feel confident as a doctor that even though I don't like science, because the molecular basis for disease is not what's killing people in this disparate way. Mm. It's in fact, the social basis of Mm. disease, the structural racism, the violence inherent in how we treat one another. And so that's really, to me, my passion is looking at those social forces and say, how do we remediate that?
0: Yes, how indeed. Um, so I I, I want to ask about, about the money part of this. There's a chart early on in your book that uh, demonstrates how the money moves out of Africa, mm-hmm. Africa being this, this resource-rich continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number, I have it right here, $192 billion flows out of Africa every year to other countries. So how does that happen and what can right. be done right. about that?
1: So, I mean, I think, thanks for asking and reading <laughs> up to that far because it's my favorite. It's not my, it's not my doing. I found that source. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the things, because I do a lot of teaching around the world about social justice and health and human rights, and I use that example because in the bubble of development and people who think they're doing good – they'll say, well, we don't want Africa to be dependent. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important to remember that it is not Africa that's dependent. We are actually, as Westerners, dependent on Africa. Every cell phone can be tracked directly to the conflict in Congo, everyone on the planet. And that conflict allows us to have the mineral coltan or the, the amalgamated mineral coltan without taxing, without fair labor, Right. And as long as we can get our cheap cell phone, and they're not that cheap, somebody's making a huge profit. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we say, oh, then we're going to give this little bit of aid to Congo. But if Congo had institutions of democracy, a fair taxation, fair wages, our cell phones would cost more and people would live with more dignity. I mean, I think about the movie Black Panther a lot Mm -hmm. because this this amazing vibranium and, you know, Wakanda. We already have vibranium and it's called Coltan and it's in Mm. every cell phone battery. And so how did this happen? This happened because the pillage of colonies of the of the empire, the project of empire was to extract human beings and resources. And it's true for India under Churchill, it's true for Belgium under Leopold, and then it's also true with the way that the the American empire was promoted through huge corporations that move, keep moving to where they get, the, where they pay the least tax, have the least uh, environmental regla- regulations, the least labor laws. And so it's just a new kind of empire. And so, unless we fight back and I think when I see the young kids fighting against climate mm-hmm. uh, change when I see people locking themselves to you know tractors and you know the the machines needed to pull tar sands oil of the ground this is all the same fight mm. and so I feel like the intersection between climate justice racial justice and sort of, um, health education is going to be a good one.
0: Yeah, they're uh, all connected. They're
1: all connected. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I I just would say that we one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is that we are still in a era of human rights that came out of the uh, out of the second world war. Mm-hmm. The idea of the government is the final sort of arbiter of respecting, protecting, fulfilling rights. And that civil society needs to demand those rights, but I think in the twenty first century, what I hope is that these young people, um, and we'll help them as allies, as old allies, that, that they will actually uh, fight for a global responsibility, well beyond the nation state. The state of you know Liberia doesn't have the resources to provide. Uh, basic rights to everyone. So we must kind of all collectively see that as our job, a kind of new cosmopolitanism or internationalism around human rights. And health would be one of the most critical ones.
0: So are you saying that it's about making sure that all of the citizens of the world, as opposed to the governments, or maybe it, things need to happen in a particular order, but it sounds to me like you're saying that Part of what this organization is trying to do, part of what global health delivery is about, is trying to make this uh, make everyone aware of the problem that everyone can play a role in mm-hmm. solving the problem. Through yeah,
1: that way. and that it's a movement, not for some specific disease problem, but that everyone should have a basic level of mm-hmm. human rights. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, international movements like the movement to abolish the transatlantic slave trade, for example, that have, can have international impact on what everyone can see. Now, it, no justice, no movement for justice is ever 100% done. But I think, you know, you see that the world can change through grassroots organizing and movements. And I think in this era where we are all every day who are wealthy, we who are wealthy are benefiting from globalization. You know, you and I sitting here, neither of us is wearing, the clothing that we're wearing is not from one country, Mm -hmm. right? I guarantee you we can look, it's China, it's India, it's Macau, it's Bangladesh, right? So, But what are we doing to help the people in those countries? So we're benefiting from globalization, but we are not taxed, we are not um, helping to ameliorate the suffering of the poor.
0: And, you know, as, as you're saying that, and you're, when you say ameliorating the suffering of the poor, I know you're talking about the poor of the whole world. Right now in this country, we have, uh, and I don't want to get too deeply into this, we have a presidential administration mm. that's moving more in a nationalistic yeah. direction and it doesn't even want to have that conversation. It doesn't want
1: to take care of the poor here either. Exactly. Would like to yeah. just throw them all out. Yeah.
0: So, uh, and, and then, and, and this connects to something else that was in the book, this sort of definition of freedom. You gave the example of Paul Ryan um, defining freedom as basically free market capitalism will solve this healthcare yeah. problem, let's get rid of ACA. And on the other hand, you talked about a more traditional definition of freedom, which is freedom from harm, essentially. Mm-hmm. So wh- how, um, that divergent idea about mm-hmm. what freedom is, how do you work with that yeah. to try to move yeah. forward and make progress with this?
1: I mean, I think, unfortunately, as the thought leader of the United States, as the thought leader for much of the 20th century, certainly the late 20th century, I think that idea of free market capitalism, unfettered trade was really promoted as freedom by Reagan and Thatcher Mm -hmm. and many people, Milton Friedman. And a lot of people bought it Mm -hmm. in the United States, but It was really forced on poor countries in the form of loans from the World Bank, from the IMF, the Washington, what was called the Washington Consensus, which is no social spending, just private marketeering. Um, But I think that the tide is turning because it's been a disaster. (laughs) The tide is turning because it's been a disaster for the planet. It's been a disaster for equity. And yes, it has made some small number of people very, 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 very wealthy. Mm-hmm. But I think even among some of the billionaires and the 1%, they're realizing that as a society that's based on just taking yeah. is not going to serve people. And I, I think that the idea that capitalism is freedom, which was the title of Milton Friedman's book, Mm -hmm. you know, very famous noble uh, laureate who wrote about neoliberal economics. I think that idea is falling on hard times among the youth Mm -hmm. and among, you know, people around the world. And so I think that maybe... It's reaching the end of its utility. The hmm. idea that, you know, freedom is the ability, as Paul Ryan says in that quote, freedom is the ability to buy what you need in yeah. terms of healthcare. What what people I work with and I think what what especially impoverished people feel is freedom is freedom from want. Hmm. Freedom to be able to feed your family to be able to put a roof over your head, to send your kids to school, and when you're sick, to be taken care of, and freedom to be able to work and get a living wage. Like, those basic freedoms, that's what most people feel allows them, you know, because what is freedom to, to like, the average person in the world is to enjoy your life, mm-hmm, right? To right. spend time with your family, to sing, to laugh, but if you are under the thumb of just grinding grinding poverty you do not have that freedom of spirit and so we need to put in these basic basic rights for people to be free and it's not you know an iphone that makes you happy in fact the data is out that, mm-hmm. that can make you quite sad yeah that's right right but connectedness and humanity but if you are just under this this grindstone all the time you can't really be free mm-hmm.
0: So I want to ask, uh, I want to get you to tell a success story before we finish this up. So Um, many. And one that you bring up very clearly in your book and on the Partners in Health website is about Joseph from Haiti. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one that that I've heard Mm -hmm. about. I wonder if you want to just talk about either that case or another one where this... uh, you know, your organization did this work, and you saw the positive result. And if you could kind of tell one of those stories, I think it would be helpful to hear.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are so mm-hmm. many. And the benefit of being a doctor in social justice, um, as opposed to a lawyer, a politician, like all of those are really needed, a mm-hmm. water engineer, is that as doctors, you get to tell individual success stories, mm-hmm. right? And that's the most remar- remarkable Thing So I'll tell a a story about a young young girl I met um, in Haiti when she was just 12 years old. And she had a very huge abdomen, and her liver and her spleen were very distended. And she was like a skeleton with this huge belly and reddish hair. And I thought, well, she probably has malnutrition, but she seemed pretty old for that. And when I examined her, she just really seemed like she probably had cancer. Mm. So we did some tests, and we sent her blood samples to Boston, and she had a condition called chronic myelogenous leukemia, a rare cancer in children, but not an uncommon cancer. And so she would have died, but there is a really good treatment for that. It's a medicine called Gleevec, which is a, a interferon uh, out- blocker. And with that medicine, she would live a long life. So I started looking around. We started looking around collectively. That medicine was $100,000 a year, and you have to stay on it for your life. Wow. But luckily, there was a foundation in the United States called the Max Foundation, which was named after a young boy who died of that disease, And just on the eve of the the really miraculous treatment being found, he died. And his mother wanted to make this treatment available to anyone, anywhere who needed it. Mm -hmm. So we contacted this foundation, and they said, yeah, we'll help you get the medicine for free. And this was in the year, you know, 2000. Mm -hmm. So... We were very small organization. We hadn't won many big, big victories. And we started treating this girl with a medicine that would have been $100,000 per year. Um, and she, all her cancer went into remission. Wow. Today, she's a mom. Mm. She's a mom. She finished high school. Wow. She got married. She has two children. Her disease has remained in remission. I mean, and what is that young girl gonna be to her country? What is that Mm -hmm. young girl gonna be to her children? What are her children gonna be, Mm -hmm. you know? And not to mention the fact that her family had impoverished themselves even trying to find care for this girl. Mm -hmm. And so the family then can have a livelihood. So I think the ripple effects of saving one life are really enormous. Mm -hmm. You know, and now we have many patients that are receiving this treatment and, you know, the fantastic partners of the Max Foundation. But that's just one story among many Mm -hmm. of saving a life and saying every person has an infinite potential. You know, and we just discount that because I think of racism, of militarism, of materialism. And, you know, that girl who's now a woman can enjoy her life, can enjoy Mm -hmm. her family. And so, you know, it's about where you put the resources yeah. and who stands with you in this case it interestingly it was another mother yeah. who had lost her own child. Oh amazing. You know? Yeah. So, but there's so many stories. I'm
0: sure and each one has as you implied this ripple effect, you know, that yes. she has kids and that there's a community that is strengthened by this yeah. kind of survival. So, yeah. it's amazing. So this is this podcast call is called the Media Narrative. So I want to ask a media question before we end this. How good of a job do you think the media is doing with this issue of delivery of healthcare and and the related issues?
1: Poorly, mm-hmm. really poorly. I, I and that's why when you asked me to do this, I was happy to talk about it. I think we need to understand what is the reality for people in the world for healthcare, whether it's you know people living in rural Mississippi who don't have you know um, public water sanitation and get literally worms mm. hookworm right which was eradicated in most places in the United States after the Civil War mm. right um, to you know the fact that women are delivering babies on in mud huts and you know that we have accepted that mm. And so I think more reporting about the injustice, of a lack of healthcare. I mean, again, like Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, they said, you know, of all the forms of injustice, the lack of health care is one of the cruelest. Right. And so I, I would like to, and I think the media did a decent job late in the, uh, later than they should have, but in the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. especially some coverage around 2000 and Time Magazine and the New York Times about showing the real impact on families uh, that had untreated AIDS in their midst. But I don't think there's enough of that now, because there's a whole development set that wants to just focus on some easy win and an app and an innovation. But what we need is a new framework for justice. And that new framework nobody's really talking about, so mm. I'd love to see that covered.
0: That would be great. I mean, it's it's uh, as you frame it, it's a big and complicated. It's big story. It's
1: complicated. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. you know the indignity of it, and I think when you think of things like childbirth, right, in Sierra Leone, which has the highest maternal mortality in the world, um, the the a woman is almost three. 3,000 times more likely to die in childbirth Mm. than than in the United States. Holy moly, okay. Right? How how do we allow that to happen in the 21st Mm. century? And that's not because of beliefs or voodoo. That's because just of a lack of modern medicine and people living in sort of biblical era in terms of their access to modern medicine. Mm. So I just feel like, you know, That's a good story. Mm -hmm. Someone could tell that story. Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know? So uh, I I wanna ask you about the book, uh, An Introduction to Global Health Delivery, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's geared for undergraduates who are interested in public health. Yeah, global health, yeah. global health. so, and, and by the way, I, since I've been reading it, I would recommend it to, to anybody. <laughs> Thank you. But um, uh, I wonder what kind of resources or if there's other books you would recommend. I read Mountains Beyond Mountains, yeah. which is the book about Paul Farmer, yeah. who is um, the head of this organization. Yes, yeah. um, What other... Re- would you recommend any other resources or books for people who are interested in learning more about this or, or <sighs> news sources that are, pro- that are providing some good information? Um, or should they just come to the Partners in Health website? No,
1: no, no. <laughs> they can come to the Partners in Health website. I, I'm of a, a sort of a mixed um, mind because because I believe so much that the social forces are more important than the biologic. Mm-hmm. I think people should read a little bit more about the the issues that are happening mm. in in the world and have happened. So. Anyone who's interested in, in Africa should read Franz Fanon, you know, who was an Alge- uh, a, Martinique, a psychiatrist from Martinique who lived in Algeria and really talked about the impacts of colonialism mm-hmm. on the mind. He was a psychiatrist. Um, so I think there are things like that, which are kind of wonky, and that's, you know, <laughs> I'm a nerdy person and, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I think those are really important. I think reading Na- Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine to understand how neoliberalism has taken hold and, and ripped away the public um, commons from us. I think those are as important as understanding the health piece. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, there are a lot of okay. great things to read. <laughs> I can give you a reading list.
0: That'd be great. Yes, do that. So uh, and sorry. And no, then last, I would
1: say, if there are people who are interested in going and working abroad in whatever, in journalism, and and mm. I think the most important thing is to read very deeply about the cultural context you're entering. So not to think you know. Anything and really listen to affected people, walk with people, see where they live, don't hang out with expats, you know, really try to be present and read deeply about the community because each and every neighborhood has a social context that as an outsider, you need to understand before you can even imagine how you could help.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really Being uh, understanding the culture seems key to working Everything. with people to, to fixing things. How often, by the way, do you go to Africa or Haiti or any of these other nations where um, you do this work?
1: You know, uh, in the 20 years I've been at PIH, I would say probably 10 years of it mm. uh, or more has been in the field. And wow. I tend to travel a week or two a month.
0: Mm. So, what's immediately next for you, Joya, or the organization so what? What are what are the projects uh, ahead, or what's the next mm-hmm. country or countries you're going to go to? What, what What's immediately ahead?
1: Yeah, I mean, for right now, we're staying where we are in eleven countries, which we feel like is a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of work we're doing on basically the right to health. There's a set of goals, the sustainable development goals that the, all of the world has put forward to reach by 2030. And in that one is universal health coverage. And we're really trying to be a voice on what that really means, justice, social determinants of health or social forces, and the provision of health care. So we're doing a lot of work to that end. We still do a lot of work on TB and HIV, mm-hmm. child malnutrition, malnutrition. Again, these are all sort of diseases that get into the body through poverty. Mm-hmm. So um, we're very focused on the diseases of the poor. But you know, we also take care of cancer and yeah. non-communicable disease, diabetes, mental health. So we kind of do everything.
0: You know, and one thing that's been in the news lately, I wonder if this is uh, uh, on the radar in any way for Partners in Health. Now people our age apparently have to get revaccinated for measles, mm. or, or maybe we do. Yeah. What, um, why is that now?
1: Well, there's so much circulating measles uh, virus because people are not vaccinating their yeah. kids. So you have this kind of general herd immunity yep. that you don't have to worry too much. But mm-hmm. now, because we have such lower vaccination rates, and just to give you an idea, I mean, the vaccination rate in the US, I think, was last reported as 83%. In Rwanda, it's 98 mm. <laughs> So <laughs> there are many countries They're that ahead are of us. kicking <laughs> our butts in terms of their ability to to provide health care for their citizens. Wow. Yeah.
0: Well, here's to learning at the same time as we're helping when yeah. we do these things.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, is there anything uh, you'd want to get across before we uh, close?
1: Um, I would just say, you know, I wanted to give one other answer mm-hmm. of what the media can do. Yes. Um, don't be racist, <laughs> right? Because like in Ebola, all of the... Um, sort of connections around Ebola were just so fundamentally racist. And I think if we are not able to see the humanity of our black and brown brothers and sisters here in the U.S. or abroad, like we will never actually experience justice as a kind of global family. So, you know, um, that's like one of the key things, attack our own racism.
0: Are you are you saying that in response to some articles you read in mainstream media that yeah. where that was just embedded News in the coverage? Week,
1: mm-hmm. The cover of Newsweek magazine during the Ebola crisis had a picture of a chimpanzee hmm. on the front, and it said "Ebola's back door to America," and it talked about Africans who were going to smuggle in bush meat um, into the United States, and you know this is just. I mean, this Newsweek is not considered a conservative paper, Right. but the, all of Ebola was transmitted from human to human because of a lack of sanitation and healthcare. And those public goods had been stripped away from Africa. Mm intentionally and to make this about exoticizing monkeys and Africans like wow and that's exactly what happened in the AIDS epidemic in the 80s -hmm. so I just feel like we need to attack that really from a journalistic standpoint and in the media
0: did you or do you sometimes in a case like that respond with a letter to the editor or reach out to such an organization and make your feelings known Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But, you know, if you tackle that, Mm. you know, when you tackle that, it doesn't go well, but yes, yeah. we certainly Good. did. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, maybe you'll send me a list of some of the resources, maybe a link to a letter like that would yeah. be a cool thing to share yeah. as well. Joya Mukherjee, thank you so much for the uh, time today. Thank you, Rob. And thank you for fighting the fight. Keep going. Will
1: we- we'll do. <laughs> okay, right. bye.
0: Learn more about Dr. Joya Mukherjee's work with Partners in Health at pih.org. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to the Media Narrative podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hochschild. Thank you for listening.